If you couldn't be here this morning and you're watching or listening or maybe watch it later, just know you're fully justified because Matt Lee is not wearing sandals. That means the weather is really, really bad. I've never seen, I mean, I've been here for over a year and I don't think I've ever seen him not wear sandals. So if you're stuck at home, don't feel bad. All right, so I want to start off with, um, actually, re so last week, kind of as we introduced the morning, I just reminded, I was really reminding myself, but you guys as well, you know, we can't just yank Romans 9 out of the book of Romans and even out of the Bible, and um, we can't, it is a part of a section that Paul is making a very um, long time to make his argument, as he does, um, but it's 9 through 11 is one section in the book of Romans that, that fits together. And I just want to read to you the end of this section because this is at the forefront of my mind every week as I'm preparing. Um, and this is what he says, Romans 11, starting in verse 33. This is how he ends the section in which he is talking about how God chooses um, nations and people and all of these things. And this is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So that's how he closes out a very difficult couple of chapters where he is trying to explain a very difficult concept. Um, and so I stand before you this morning completely humbled by the fact that Paul gets to the end of it and says, there are many things about God that I don't understand. There are many things about God that are unsearchable, that are unknowable. And so that is constantly before my eyes. As I read, as I read the Bible, I'm always playing this game. Like, at what level can I understand what is being said here? And at what level is this understanding or this idea an unsearchable, unknowable thing about who God is. Because we recognize that we can't know everything about God. We can't know everything about his character, about how he operates. Um, and so I say all of that because I want you to know um, that you, know, you guys have, have asked me to come and fill the pulpit week in and week out, and I take that responsibility like very, very seriously. So I give anywhere from 6 to 10, sometimes 12 hours a week to prepare, you know, to speak and preach for 30 to 40 minutes, um, because I think it's important. Now, we all recognize that a day's worth of work is limiting, right? I, I, I don't understand everything that I read. I don't understand every verse and every word. Um, I do everything that I can, and I can't even read 1% of the things that are written about the passage that, you know, we're covering. I mean, it's just the, the, the level and, and the amount of stuff is so vast. Um, so I say all this because I want you to know, A, that I am giving everything that I have um, in my study and in my preparation, and especially when we get to difficult passages and difficult chapters, I, I, I want you to know that I, I am totally okay with and I, and I love and I um, welcome people coming and asking me questions about the sermon, about the things that they heard, or about what's read. But the, the thing that I want to, I guess, encourage or challenge all of us with is that when we get into difficult sections of Scripture um, that we might not understand or that we think, I, I don't get it, this kind of flies in the face of things I've been taught before, um, just to let the Bible guide you, right? 
Don't, we, and here's the thing. You can't go to the Bible without a preconceived understanding and a preconceived idea of how God operates, of what he does. Everybody does that. No matter where you stand on any theological issue, we all come to the Bible with a preconceived notion, right? And so the challenge is, how do we shed those so that the, the Bible is the only thing that is guiding how we understand and how we read and how we um, view this. And so that is my challenge to you, and that's the challenge that I give myself every week, is that when I come to things like Romans 9, where I think, man, like I, you know, I, I know that I, my, my predisposition, my understanding is that I come from a Calvinist perspective, and like that's how I understand the Bible, I do everything within my power to shed all of that, so that I can see a familiar passage with fresh eyes, that the Holy Spirit can guide me wherever he's going to take me, and not just say, oh yeah, I already knew that. Oh yeah, I'm just agreeing with all the things I've known my whole life. No, that's not what I want to do, and that's not what I want you guys to do. I want all of us to come to Scripture and just let it guide us. Let it say what it actually says, regardless of what we thought it said before, and so that is as much of a challenge to myself as it is to you guys, Um, and so I wanted to start this morning by saying that Because I think if we can do that, we can really learn some very interesting and deep truths about who God is. Um, So that's what I want more than anything. I just want to come to the scripture and I want to read it and I want God to reveal himself to me. More than any doctrinal issue, I just want to know God better when I read and I study the Bible. And so that's, that's what I'm committing to you and I hope that you can commit that back to me as well. Um, so that if we have conversations where you think, oh, I disagree with that or I disagree with that, that that's the spirit that we can even come to those conversations with. We're coming together to talk because we want to know God better. Not because we want to prove ourselves right. I don't want to prove I'm right and you're wrong or any of that kind of nonsense. That has, that has no bearing on me. I, that, I am not interested that, in that at all. I'm interested in knowing God more deeply. So I hope that you are as well and I hope that we can tackle this difficult and, and hard to understand um, chapter this morning, because we're going to, I mean, the, the last verse, and it stayed on the screen for a minute, right? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That's God's word. Like, how do we, how do we understand that? I thought God loved everybody. Like, we are coming to some difficult phrases, difficult verses, difficult statements about God. How do we reconcile this? How do we understand it? How do we make sense of the things that we're reading? And so that's the challenge for us this morning. And the first thing, and this is the foundation in which we must stand, and it is the first, se- or the first part of verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. If you don't agree with that, you have far bigger problems than secondary, thirdary issue, theological issues. If you can't 100% joyfully in your heart say, I believe with every part of my being that the word of God has never failed, there's an issue, right? There's a problem. Because if you don't believe, if you believe that God's word has failed at any point, then how can you be firm in your salvation? How can you believe any of the promises that God has ever made to you if you believe that part of his promises have ever failed? This is a foundational truth. It is one that we must believe with every part of our being. We may not understand all the inner workings of how God is doing things, but at the end of the day, we can say, that's the most confusing thing I've ever heard, or I don't like that. But God's word has never failed, ever, no matter what. No matter if I think it has, no matter if my perception or what I see around me, it seems as though God's word has failed. It hasn't. 
If you feel like God's word has failed or your perception is you are wrong and God is right every time, right? Same for me. When I look around me and I think, God, you told me that you love me, but it doesn't really feel like that in this moment. I'm wrong. God's love is still real. It is still effective. It is still active, right? That is a foundational truth. That is one that we cannot waver on, not even a little bit. It's not that God's word works 99.9% .9 of the time. It has never, ever, ever failed. I was reading this week, um, I was introduced to some novels about, um, it's sort of a novelization of some, a part of the history of Europe, and, and especially England. And so growing up in America, maybe I, maybe I was forced to take English history at some point. I don't remember it if I did. And so I'm reading these books, and it's like, it's, it's, it's like um, they're written as a novel. And I'm thinking, there's no way that this is true. This is so interesting. Like, there's no way that it's happening. And so this one book that I'm reading is about Henry VI, and he's running around, and, he's, and he was a sick guy, and he got married, and he was sick for a long time. And he was bedridden for almost two years, and when he overcomes that, he gets up out of bed, and he's going around, and he's going around England trying to show everybody that he's better, right? Well, there's a rebellion that happens while, while he's going around, and they, they're in this little town, and they're in a tent, and part of the rebellion comes into town. They break through sort of a, a back way. Nobody sees them, and the archers just lay loose, and like 100 arrows go into his tent. And one of them hits the king, like, right through his neck. And anyway, and so at this time, the idea was the king of England is God's chosen person. Nobody can, nobody can stand against him. If you do, then you must, be, you must be fighting against who God is. Like, God will curse you if you stand up against the king. And the commentator in the book, he said, God must have blinked when that archer shot his arrow. As if there was ever a time when God is not in complete control. As if there was ever a time when God did not know what he is doing. You see, this truth is so foundational to what we believe that I would even go so far as to say, if you hear here this morning and you say, I disagree, I don't think, I think there are times when God's word has failed. I don't, I don't know that I, could, that, that I could confidently say that you were even a Christian, right? Because if you don't believe that, everything else crumbles all around you. So this is foundational, right? No matter what we believe at the end of today, this is the thing that we can always go back to. I don't understand this, I don't understand that, but God's word never, ever, ever fails. And then he makes a statement, right? We sort of looked at it a little bit last week. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all the children... Of Ab not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This is a statement, right, that is revolutionary, or supposedly revolutionary, right? The Jews hear these things and they think, what in the world are you talking about? If I am a child of Abraham, that, makes, that means I'm good. That means that, there's, that I have no worries, that I have been saved, that I have been justified. All of these things, this is what at the time many, many, many of the Jews, many of the Pharisees, believed and if you don't recognize that let's go and i'll prove it to you right let's look at john chapter 8 to start with this one is the most striking one there's two really good examples but this one i think is the most striking john chapter 8 starting in verse 31 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you are able in my word, or if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall, shall set you free. Now here, here's their answer. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they don't understand what he's saying, right? So then Jesus clarifies. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came out of my own accord. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are your father, sorry, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. First thing, that's Jesus speaking, right? He doesn't abide by the 11th commandment, thou shalt be polite, right? He is talking to Pharisees and calling them sons of the devil and liars and murderers. I don't know where we got this idea that as a church we just better be really nice and really polite and avoid all conflict at all times and that we shouldn't confront the world with what they actually are, non-believers who are these things, right? Well, well we've, we got to be, if we're going to get them in the church, we're going to get them saved, we better be nice and we better be polite and all these things. Jesus isn't yelling at them, right? I'm not, I'm not promoting street corner sign guy yelling at everybody with a bullhorn. But we should call out sin when we see it, right? There's the first thing to see. And the second thing to see is that Jesus tells them, I have the truth, and that truth will set you free. And their answer is, I don't need that. Don't you know? Father, my father is Abraham. I'm safe. What are you talking about, truth setting me free? Those things don't abide. To, they, they don't apply to me. And putting a further point on it, look at Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is standing in the river. He's baptizing. And this is what he says in verses 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise 
God is able from the stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John calls them to repentance, and then he says, I know what you're going to say to me. We don't need to repent. Abraham is our father. And John says, don't even, don't even go there. Right? Don't say to me, Abraham is my father. That does nothing for you. The Israelites think that this is the answer. Abraham is our father. We are Jews. We are Israelites. We don't need your salvation. We don't need to repent. We are saved. Paul is not the first one to bring this up. He's not the first one to tell them that just because you are of Israel does not mean that you are a true Israelite. Not all who are of Israel belong to Israel. And if you think John and Jesus are the first ones, let's go back to the very beginning. Maybe not the very beginning. Pretty close, right? Genesis 21. Go to Genesis 21 with me. 10 to 13. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Flip over one chapter. Chapter 22. Verse 2. This is God speaking. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Do you think that God forgot that Ishmael existed? Why does he look and say, take your son, your only son, Isaac? Because Isaac is the son of the promise, not Ishmael. You see, the Israelites living at this time who have missed this idea, it's not a new concept. Think about the choosing of David. Now, if you're choosing somebody to go and fight a giant, who is it that you're going to choose amongst him and all of his brothers? The youngest, runtiest one, the smallest one of the litter? This is who God chooses throughout the entire Old Testament, generation after generation after generation. God is choosing one son in order for his promise to be propagated, in order for his promise to continue, for the covenants to be fulfilled by one son and not the other. And so Paul echoes this language. He echoes the language of Jesus here, right, by saying, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He makes a distinction between these two things, right? Not all of the offspring of Abraham are his children. These are different words. 
is sort of weird for us to think about, but we understand that it has meaning, right? That there is a difference between being an offspring and being children. So not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, the problem is that the Bible is not unclear on this issue. It's that for one reason or another, the Jews refuse to believe it throughout the entire Old Testament. It's not even that, well, it's Jesus who is saying it. We reject Jesus, so we reject his ideas. God has been doing this from the very beginning. And here's the thing. The same, the same temptation is in front of us. The same pitfall is in front of us even today. How many of you have ever heard somebody say something like this? I have been a Christian my whole life. Now at best, that's an oversimplification of the fact that maybe they became a Christian young in life. But many, many, many people who I have met over the years, right, through the hospital system, even very recently, you, it's really funny to see somebody's face when you just walk into their room and say, hey, my name's Chris, I'm the chaplain. They just immediately... Oh, I've been a Christian all my life. I love, I love the Lord. And they just, like, uh, I'm there to question them or something. I don't know. I mean, people just want to offer up all of these things. Well, my parents were Christians, and I was baptized, and I went to church. And they list off all of these things, and I never hear, I repented and believed in Jesus. You see, we live in a world, in a society, where a lot of people think, well, my parents were Christians. I grew up in the church. I was baptized. I live in a Christian nation. So I must be a Christian. There's nothing to do with it. None of those things. It's good, right, it's good and it's beneficial to grow up going to church. It's good and beneficial to have Christian parents who can teach you about who God is. But at the end of the day, none of that will save you. The Jews think that because Abraham is their father, because they can name Israel as their genealogy, and they can name what tribe they come from, they are saved. That's not how it works. That's still not how it works. I hope that there's nobody in here who thinks, well, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christian. Or I'm a Christian because I was baptized as a, as a kid and I went to church. None of those things will save you. Only repentance. Only belief in Jesus. Only bowing the knee and asking for forgiveness of Christ will forgive you. It will save you. So don't let that... Sa- I mean, that's what they're suffering from. And you think, well, that same thing is in front of us. I, don't let that be... A pitfall for you. Don't believe the lie that because you went to church as a kid or because your, your parents are Christians, that makes you a Christian. So then in verse 7, he further explains this idea, right? Not all of Abraham's offspring are his children. And once again, this seems a little bit of an odd thing to say, but we, we can... We, I think we can come to terms with this. I think we can understand this. Think about somebody who has a child and they give the child up for adoption, right? And then same person, they have a child later down the road and they keep that child in their home. The child they gave up for adoption is part of their offspring, but it's not a child, right? That child belongs to the family who adopted them. That's their child, right? We, we recognize that sometimes we use these words interchangeably, but really they're not. They're two different things. And it's through Isaac that his offspring will be named. Now, i got to say, I love the ESV, but I'm baffled at their translation here. That is a horrible, horrible translation, right? That Greek word for named, everywhere else in the New Testament that I looked it up, is actually called. And it's not even the word called, but it's, it's a further meaning. Called into existence. 
That's what that word means. That God, through Isaac, called into existence his nation of Israel. There was nothing there before, and God calls it out of nothing. It's a, it's a very similar idea to Genesis 1. When God creates everything, he calls into existence everything from nothing. I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate when he says that through Isaac, your offspring will be called. They will be called into existence. And so then the negative is implied, right? If it's through Isaac that the nation of Israel will be called into existence, it's not happening through Ishmael. Why? That's the question, right? That's the question we all want to know. In our hearts, we say, God, that seems kind of mean. And that seems unfair. Like, why are you choosing one over the other? And why is this happening? And I don't understand why. What did Ishmael do in order to make him unworthy of God's call? And the answer is, he did nothing. In the same way that Isaac did nothing in order to make him worthy of it. It had nothing to do with these two boys. It, had, it wasn't that Ishmael somehow was a, a deeper or worse sinner or something. It was just that God looked upon the two and said, I choose Isaac. That's the end of the story, right? He chooses him. Now we are tempted in this moment, right? Why? And guess what? You're free to ask God why. And that's okay. And he wants you to come to him with your questions and ask him, God, why did you do this? And maybe, I, and I don't understand. But here is the thing. Don't expect an answer. You can go and you can ask, but you better do it in the proper way, right? In humbleness. Lord, I would love to know more about you, and I see something that you did, and I don't understand it. Are you willing to explain that? But here's the problem is that we don't often go to God asking why with that mentality. Often what we do is we go to God and we say, God, I don't like what I just read. That seems ungodly to me. And so I need you to, in fact, I expect you to explain yourself. Why did you choose Isaac and not Ishmael? That's not fair. That's not okay. You better, you better come to reckoning here and tell me why you did the things that you did. That's not okay. That is not how we approach the God of the universe. Guess what? We, our understanding is so limited that we don't even understand ourselves sometimes. Much less do we understand all of the other people on the planet, all the people who live before us, all the people who are going to live after us, and God knows all of that. And you don't even know your own mind. The gap between you and your knowledge and God's knowledge is so infinite. We dare never stand in his presence and say, explain yourself to me. That's not okay. So we can go to God. We ask our questions and we do it in humbleness. Lord, I would love to know more about this. And really, I think the answer is, we, we see it later in this section, right? God chose Isaac because he chose Isaac. Because he made a choice. So verse 8, it clears it up even more. Paul wants to make doubly sure that there is no confusion, right? It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. So one of his children is counted in the promise, and one is not. 
And this is why he quotes what he does in verse 9. Listen to verse 9 again. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. See, God made no promise to Hagar. He doesn't look at Hagar and say, I promise in a miraculous way that you are going to give birth to a son Ishmael through Abraham. Ishmael is born through the product of biology, right? Through the product of Abraham not being willing to wait or whatever. You, you say what you I have a hard time with that because Hebrews says that he didn't lose faith, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, it seems to me like he lost it. But once again, that's that thing, right? I don't get it. So I, it, God's word didn't fail. I, I fail somewhere in that. I don't, I don't see it. I don't understand it. But here's the thing. The promise is made to Sarah, who is almost 100 years old and who is barren. That's a miracle. The birth of Ishmael is not necessarily a miracle. That's a product of biology. Isaac is a miracle, and that is who the promise is being made through. Sarah was given the promise. And Isaac is the one whom the promise comes to. I mean, this is like, this is, the, the best comparison I could think of was thinking of the fact that Jesus is born through the promise, right? For the last couple of weeks in Sunday school, we've been talking about the incarnation of Christ. The fact that he came to this earth in flesh. He came here, and that was a promise given by God through the whole Old Testament. And then given as a promise to Mary and Joseph both, and to lots of other people. But his brother James is a product of biology, right? His brother James comes onto the picture. He's not saving anybody. The salvation of the world doesn't come through James just because he is also a seed of Mary. No, he's not part of the promise. Now, he does a lot of really good things. He writes the book of James through the, right, through the inspiration of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, there's a lot of good things that James does. He's an elder in the church of Jerusalem, but the promise doesn't come through him. It comes through Jesus. And in the same way, the promise comes through Isaac and not through Ishmael. And then later we're going to see through Jacob and not through Esau. I think we need to recognize something, though. The son, who is not a part of the promise, is not cast out and forgotten by God. We read in Genesis, God made Ishmael into a great nation because he was a son of Abraham, right? Esau is not cast out and completely forgotten by God. Now his nation later on is not deemed highly by God. That's where we get verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This is not talking about individual people. There's two things to say about that. I, we'll do it now because I think it's pertinent to do. We'll do it now. Um, first of all, the word hated right here, um, I, don't, I hate throwing a lot of Greek at you. But like the word hated here is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, you shall hate your father and mother if you're going to follow after me. Do you think that Jesus is breaking or telling people to break the 10th commandment when he does that? Of course not. What does he mean? The word hated, it's the only way to translate out of the Greek, but it means something different to us than it meant to them. When Jesus tells his followers, you must hate your father and mother, brother and sister, right? All of that, you remember this passage, right? That's what he says, same word used, right? He is telling them, they must come second. They cannot be superior to following after the Lord. God doesn't look at Esau when he is born and say, I hate this little baby. I want to kill. No, he hates what the nation that comes from Esau, is made into. 
You see, that quote doesn't come from Genesis. God doesn't say that when they're born. That's from Malachi, much, much, much later. Because the nation of Edom would not submit to God's rule, would not to submit to Israel's authority over it, and God curses them over and over and over again because of their disobedience. So Paul goes further to make the point, right? So once again, when God chooses one son over the other, he doesn't cast out the one he doesn't choose. He doesn't hate that one. He doesn't destroy that one. He loves all of his creation. It's just that some were chosen to, for God's promise and for his covenant to go through, and some were not. I mean, I know that God has chosen certain men, even in our society, that are going to be far greater than anything I could ever do, Right? I don't get sad when I think about the fact that Billy Graham, you know, re reached millions of people. Why don't I get to preach to millions of people? No, 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 that's okay. I'm, I'm totally fine with that, right? He was good at what he did. God gifted him to do what he did, and that's totally okay. I don't want to try and stand in the shoes of somebody like John MacArthur or Don Carson or some of these guys who really have influence on Christianity across the planet. God's gifted them with that. I... We shouldn't be like, why hasn't God chosen me to do that? Why am I not on stage in front of thousands and millions of people sharing the gospel? Nope, it's fine. God chooses some people to do certain things, and, and some of us, like me, who will just, you know, it's okay. I, I'm totally fine with that. And so we shouldn't be jealous, and we shouldn't think God is unfair or all of these other things. God chooses some, but he loves everyone. He loves all of his creation. The fact that he doesn't choose one of the brothers doesn't mean that he hates them, doesn't mean that he's going against them. And so then we have to ask, okay, so wh why does he keep giving us examples? It's pretty clear in the choice of Isaac over Ishmael, but Paul knows. Man, he knows the Jews, and he knows what they're going to say. I mean, what do you think they're going to say? If that's the only example he gave, yeah, but Ishmael, I mean, come on. He's not, really, he's not really Abraham's son. Like, we don't like to think about what Abraham did there, but like, that's, not really, that's not really his kid. He's not really an Israelite. Like, come on. I mean, it's, it, you know, and whatever you want to say about it, right? Ishmael comes from, a, from an outsider, from a pagan slave woman. That's not his wife. Like, we're just going gonna to push that to the side and say, of course it wasn't Ishmael. It, Isaac, I mean, he's the one of the promise. He's the one who came through Abraham and through Sarah. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, that's not surprising to me that he would choose Isaac over Ishmael. Like, let's take the best example that could ever exist. Jacob and Esau. These are born of Isaac and Rebekah, right? They're born as close to being at the exact same time as any two human beings can be born from the same womb. Jacob is grabbing onto Esau's heel as he comes out, right? They're essentially born together. I mean, they're like a half a second apart. Not only that, the twins... I assume identical twins. I don't really know. Most twins, though, I, right? I mean, they're twins. They're coming out at the same time. They're brothers of one. What Paul, I mean, what Paul is saying here is he's making sure that we know that also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
is wanting to make sure that we know that both of these boys are coming out at the same time. It's not as if one son was born in a time when Isaac's life, when he was in rebellion against God, but then later another son was born when he was following after God. So, of course, that would be the son that God would choose. There is literally no difference between these two other than the order of their birth. And God chooses one and not the other. Look at Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armenian to be his wife. Armenian, sorry. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was, um, she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together in her, within her womb, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days were to give birth, were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak, so that they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So regardless of the fact that they're terrible parents, right? Um, I mean, what, how do you choose one kid over another? Um, this is the story in which these two boys come about. So before they were ever born, God declares it in Genesis Paul echoes it here, that before they were ever born, they had done nothing either good or bad in the order of that God's a pur purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I mean, how many qualifi qualifiers does he need to give? He just keeps more and more and more because he knows that we don't like this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. He could have just stopped there. No, but he doesn't. In order that God's purpose and election might continue, he could have stopped there. But no, he just keeps going. Not because of works, but because of the will of, of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. It had nothing to do with them. God looks at them and says, I'm choosing one and I'm not choosing the other. Now, what's really interesting, I've heard this many, many times in my life, and it, it doesn't, like, it's not convincing to me. I bring it up because, like, well, the reason that God chose Jacob over Esau is because he's outside of time. He can see to the future. He can see everything that's going on. So that's why he chooses Jacob and not Esau. He knew what Jacob would do. He understood. He knew. He saw. He saw his life. <laughs> why would he have chosen Jacob? If he is choosing on any work, why would he have not chosen Esau? Are you familiar with these two and what they do? 
Esau's life is defined by the fact, I mean, when he, when he sells his birthright, what has he been doing? He's working all day in the field. And he has been working so much that he is so hungry, he thinks he's going to die. What's Jacob doing? Sitting in the tent, making lentil stew, right? Not necessarily saying one is better than the other, I guess. But here's the thing, right? He is working hard, and he comes in, and weak, and he asks his brother, can you please give me something to eat? And instead of his brother saying, thank you so much for working in the field and doing all that you do, and here, I, here's my part, and here's some stew. I made something delicious for you. Please eat, strengthen yourself. What does he do? Ah, opportunity strikes. He's going to trick him. He's going to steal something from him when he is in his weakest state. You see, if God was looking to the future to look and see which one of these boys would be more noble, and that's the one I'm going to choose, it would have been Esau, not Jacob. When his father is dying, what does Esau do? He goes out and he finds his father's favorite meal. He says, I know that he's at the end of his life. I want to give him something that he loves. And he goes and he hunts and he finds it and he prepares that meal for him. What's Jacob doing? I know how I'll trick my own father into giving me the, the stuff that belongs to my older brother. Esau is far more noble than Jacob. If it was based on their works, if it was based on God looking into the future and seeing how they behave, he would have chosen Esau, but he doesn't because it has nothing to do with that. Because the reality is Esau was a sinner too. And Jacob was a sinner, and everyone is a sinner. And the fact that he would choose either one of them is a grace and a kindness. God doesn't choose certain people because of how good or how bad they are, because then he would choose none of us. We all deserve to go to hell. We all deserve to pay for the sins that which we have committed. The fact that God would save anybody on this planet is his kindness, his goodness, and his grace coming forth. When we think about God's sovereign choice, the natural reaction is to think it's not fair or it's unkind. But the fact is, the fact that he would save any of us is his kindness, it is his grace, it is his love coming forth. I want to close with this. Why is it important? Why is it important to realize? Why is it important to look at the fact that Paul is willing to give us answer and proof and answer after answer after answer and lay them on three and four levels deep to try and explain the thing that he has said that he knows people don't want to hear, right? He's made this statement to us. Not all of Israel belong to Israel. And he gives multiple examples to explain why this is true. It's vital because it's vital to understanding verse 19, which we're going to get to next week. You see, the whole book of Romans, Paul has been asking questions and answering them, giving proof after proof after proof. If he has the answer, he's going to give it to us. In verse 19, he says, you will say to me then, why does he find fault? Or who can resist his will? You see, he asks another question, and he doesn't give us an answer. I believe if he had an answer, he would have given it to us, right? What he says is, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Now, we'll get there later, right? But the point is, Paul has shown us 
chapter after chapter after chapter that he is willing to ask these questions. He's willing to raise these things. And if he has an answer, he gives it to us every time. And we get to the heart of it. We get to the core of it. The question is, if God is choosing people for salvation, then how can he possibly still find fault? And that's where Paul says, who are you to answer back to God? So for now, let's trust in the fact that God has infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, that the thing that we read at the very beginning is true and will, is true and will always be true. It's not as though the word of God has failed. It has never failed. It never will fail. All of God's promises stand true. And so even if we dig into this, right, even if we dig into these ideas of predestination and salvation and how do they come together and what happens and what's going on, and we can walk away with the end of, with the end of this section, right? God's ways are unsearchable and unknowable, right? We don't have an answer. We don't have a distinct, really clear answer from Scripture about all of these things. But we can rest on this truth. God's word never fails. No matter how much I understand or don't understand, no matter how much I see or perceive or understand or see, God's word never fails. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you that your promises are true and that they are everlasting no matter how unfaithful we are. Father, even though we have sinned more times than any of us can count, you are faithful to your promise that all who call upon your name, all who believe that you are the Lord are saved. Lord, that when we trust in you for our salvation, that promise of salvation is forever. What we have read earlier in Romans, that there is no condemnation for those who trust and believe in Christ Jesus. Father, we can stand firm on that promise, regardless of all of these other things, regardless of trying to understand all the ins and outs of salvation and your will and exertion and election and all of these things, and we try and we strive and we're trying to find out what you have to say to us, but at the end of the day, even when we don't understand, we know that your word never fails. So, Father, we are so grateful for that. We are so grateful that your promises are true. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.